This is the Canadian Tax Podcast, episode number 14, hosted by me, Cameron Ware. Good morning. Happy Monday. It is the week of June 14th, 2021. Uh, Welcome, everybody. We will, like usual, start with the news. Uh, So we'll lead this week with the bombshell ProPublica's, we'll call it a tax article from from last week. Basically, the uh, ProPublica released an analysis that contrasts the... uh, I guess the the actual taxes paid by the wealthiest people in America versus their actual wealth. Uh, and this was, I'll give these guys credit. It's a pretty pretty simple uh, calculation and, and cuts right to uh, the, the heart of the issue, to use a bad cliche. Uh, basically what they did was they took, uh, ProPublica took, uh, leaked tax returns, uh, raw data that was actually leaked right to them, which is a separate issue. We'll get to that in a second. But they took the information from uh, tax returns that were filed with the IRS and took that tax number and compared it to the Forbes magazine, uh, Forbes magazine's published net worth of their respective individuals. So you had guys like uh, uh, Warren Buffett, Michael Bloomberg, I think Elon Musk was on there. Um, just, uh, lots of, you know, well, when you think of the Forbes wealthiest, it's the names on that list. So to read your, to reiterate what ProPublica did was they took the actual taxes paid based on the individuals, uh, discussed and, and their tax filings and compared it against the Forbes magazines, uh, net worth, uh, calculations for those, for those clients and the results, I don't want to say it's it's bad. It's really it's really bad. Uh, some of these guys are paying effective tax rates based on this calculation. I mean, it's not. It's there's a little bit of nuance here, which we'll get to. But when you look at how much the guys are worth, guys and girls are worth versus the tax paid, you're looking at sometimes less than one percent of. Uh, like, like we're talking 0.3% tax. And in some cases, people even got refunds. Um, it, so uh, it's it's awkward. Uh, at first glance, it's very awkward. And to to give a little bit of context here, what this publication's um, article cuts to is is the issue between earned income versus unrealized income, or in this case, uh, on unrealized capital gains. So what you have is someone like Jeff Bezos with Amazon, he owns Amazon shares. That's where his wealth is tied up. He doesn't necessarily earn salaries or, or, uh, I think he does get some dividends, but maybe not. I don't know. I, I didn't review. Well, I can't, I don't have access to that information. Um, but the point is, it's not like he gets a, a, a W-2 or the Canadian equivalent of a T-4 for, you know, billions of dollars every year. It doesn't happen. He sits on shares. Uh, Amazon's value, of course, has just skyrocketed. So on paper, if Bezos gets around to selling those shares, yeah, he will realize a lot of money. If he doesn't do anything with it, just sits on those shares, uh, his, the expression is he just has paper gains. He, he hasn't actually triggered any real disposition. Um, and the way the U.S. tax code, the way the, the Canadian tax code is written, you're not taxed on your, your unrealized gains. So, you know, you think, well, these, these Wall Street guys or these tech barons, 
what does it matter? Well, we'll put a different spin on it. You know, Canadian real estate market right now, people's principal residences, especially baby boomers. You know, they bought these houses for 200000 if that. Now they're worth, I mean, you look at the Vancouver, Toronto real estate markets, these houses are worth millions. If you want to yell and, and chase down Bezos and, and Buffett, Bill Gates, the, the usual suspects, and say, hey, you guys need to pay your fair share, if you're going to apply that uh, type of taxation or, or what's called a wealth tax, uh, these similar or, or a, a possible risk or, or a, uh, you know, if you if you just use some logic and, and walk that through, uh, possibly you have just average Canadian baby boomers getting hit by the same um, uh, same tax implementation. So it's not as the, the solution to this issue is not as simple as, well, just tax unrealized wealth. Um, Europe's a few European countries still have a, a wealth tax. France, uh, interestingly, they like to tax the hell out of everyone, in my opinion. Uh, but even they've walked back from wealth tax. Just issues of it, you know, the the compliance, um, having a, a government department that is sophisticated enough to assess whether or not the the values being used, uh, the valuations being used for. Um, uh, for purposes of, I guess, reporting the taxes, um, you know, it's, if it's one, if it's a tax of one percent of your net worth, well, how do you establish net worth? A lot of guys, uh, a lot of these guys will go to um, uh, call it business valuators that will maybe artificially reduce the uh, the values of their properties. I mean, when we looked at uh, the New York Times article a couple years ago, that uh, that it was, as far as tax reporting goes, in my opinion, it was pretty lackluster. Um, they a lot of shock and awe that they tried to do and missed the mark completely. But the point was, you saw that with Trump's tax return filings. He'd file one thing with uh, with the IRS that would make his tax liabilities really low. Um, assessed values of properties, things like that. If you had to pay uh, capital gains on it, he'd get a, a, a valuation that uh, suggested that the property sold was really low. He'd pay low tax on that. Contrasting with when he would apply for bank loans, he'd make the uh, properties look as expensive as possible so that he could borrow against that, uh, that equity, or at least the, the equity on paper. So in a similar fashion... You're, you're going to have a lot of these wealthy guys that are going to play with the numbers, so to speak, and you now need an entire department dedicated to um, uh, detecting these errors and, and trying to remedy them. And, of course, that leads to court cases. It leads to a lot of money spent in, uh, uh, in terms of tax lawyers and things like that. And a lot of these individuals in question have very, very deep pockets. So it... It's not as simple as, well, we'll just, you know, let's tax the bastards. It, it's not as, you can't do that. It's, it's uh, at face value, it, it feels good. It feels great to say that. Even I'm in agreement there. Uh, in reality, there's a lot of issues that, uh, that will come with that type of uh, uh, taxation approach. So, so I, I can't offer any solutions here. Uh, that's, that's a very long podcast, and we can dig into that uh, at a different time if, uh, if listeners care. But the point was, I just wanted to bring uh, listeners' attention to the uh, the ProPublica article. If you haven't uh, if you haven't read it, check it out. It's in the show notes here. It's it's interesting, and and I will give the guys credit, the authors credit. They did a pretty good job of uh, taking a, a very technical 
um, analysis and making it palatable for the average reader. It's a, it's a good article. Um, interestingly, the Biden administration, uh, when this all came out, the, actually the, the, the IRS, um, uh, current head of the IRS, instead of, you know, the, the conversation being, yeah, this is, this is, uh, this tax issue of the, the wealthiest, not quote unquote paying their way, um, Instead of addressing that issue, the uh, government specifically said leaking someone's tax information is a crime and we're going to figure out who leaked that information to uh, ProPublica. So <laughs> take from that what you will. But point was, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't read this article, go check it out. It's, uh, it's a pretty decent uh, review of the, the current issue, at least in terms of states. Now, moving on to Canada, CRA put out a bulletin on the latest tax scheme that's kind of going around, uh, specifically with the, uh, the TFSAs. Uh, it's an advisory uh, that details the, uh, or rather in the advisory, it details uh, that what happens is the, the advisors or, or the, the guys or girls that are, that are pushing this, uh, this scheme, they create a, a mortgage investment corporation and that corp then issues two classes of shares, one that pays low rate dividends and one that pays high rate dividends. Uh, the participant in the scheme then buys these low rate and high rate shares from, uh, the mortgage investment corp and they buy these shares in their, uh, via their TFSA. The mortgage corp then lends money from that purchase uh, back to the participant. And the participant then invests the proceeds with the promoter of the scheme, and the participant then earns investment income from that scheme. Uh, the participant then moves on to make RSP withdrawals or RIF withdrawals, depending on how they structured it, but we'll just stick with RSP withdrawals. Uh, of course, when they take that money out, it triggers tax, but... The participant has also, quote unquote, borrowed money at uh, high rates of interest for uh, investment purposes. And of course, there is a, an interest deduction for uh, any money that is borrowed to then pump into investments. So the, uh, the participant pulls out the RSP uh, withdrawal, pays tax on that, but then books a corresponding uh, interest uh, deduction, which offsets the tax on the RSP uh, withdrawal. As the participant does this over time, they then are able to shift the balance of their RSP over to the TFSA in a tax-free manner, supposedly. Uh, CRA says, well, first I'll say, are you confused? Because I'm confused. I, I understand on paper, there's a lot of back and forth here. It's once stuff gets this weird, your your spidey sense as a client, as someone who's being approached by someone to pitch this type of thing, your spidey sense should should be going. If it sounds too good to be true, typically it is. Um, in this case, CRA has said it's it's nonsense. the The way this whole thing works is essentially you're you're borrowing money from yourself. You're charging a high rate of uh, interest on that money and then deducting it. CRA says, no, 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 that's a sham. It's nonsense. We're not going to allow it. So, um, yeah, if you come across that type of, uh, uh, quote unquote opportunity in, uh, the next few months, 
don't just again your spidey sense is going to go off listen to it if you're not sure again call uh call someone you trust call your accountant call your uh your tax lawyer it just just say no as they say so next uh next item on the list here the uh the new uh proposed g7 tax rates uh jack mintz uh like him or not he publishes very good uh tax articles um, at least in, in terms of talking points. So um, Jack over in the Financial Times, has um, um, he's got an article here that's, that's worth checking out. Uh, specifically, he discusses the proposed 15% tax on profits earned by a multinational corporation in the various jurisdictions. The way this is being pitched is if... You know, Google makes a bunch of money in the U.S. It makes a bunch of money in Ireland. It makes a bunch of money in Spain. It makes a bunch of money in France and so on and so on. Uh, the way that the G7 has approached this is they want to have Google pay tax in each jurisdiction where it earns profits. The uh, To quote Jack here, uh, Ottawa will get 15% of the profits net of foreign corporate and withholding taxes paid to that country. However, if other countries already take 15% or more, Ottawa gets nothing. So you need a bit more context there to, to decipher what he's saying. And to put it a less confusing way, I'll steal another quote from Jack. A Canadian firm paying 12.5% on its profits in a more lightly taxed country will have to pay another 2.5% to Ottawa to get up to the 15%. So that's basically what... Uh, <sighs> That's what the story is there. And what Jack gets at is is this type of taxation does tend to attract problems. Uh, one thing he points out is corporate taxes are never uh, absorbed by the corporation generally. Um, when it comes to multinationals, they don't eat that. Whatever taxes they get hit with, whether it's uh, tariff-based, whether it's sales tax-based, whether it's just corporate taxes, it gets passed on to the consumer. So while it feels good to say, you know, screw the corporations, we're going to uh, hit them with extra taxes and they're going to pay their own way, uh, in reality, that's not really what happens. In, in I mean, there's a, there's tons of studies that, that show that, no, these aren't borne by the corporations, the, the extra cost in terms of taxes passed on to consumers and paid for out of the, uh, the average citizen's pocket. Um, separately, Jack comments on, right now, countries want these big businesses, these big multinationals to do business in their jurisdiction. Um, it's... It, they in in one way or another they they get the countries get some sort of benefit from it so what you're going to find happening is instead of countries say quote unquote uh dropping tax rates for the um uh these big companies to uh, tax shop they call it but it's it does shop around and whatever outfit uh, whatever country offers the lowest tax rate that's where these companies will set up their uh their headquarters and and uh you know, reside in, as they say. Um, in, instead of uh, tax rate shopping, what countries are going to do is, okay, they'll keep a, a general, you know, 15% corporate tax, but indirectly they'll offer a whole bunch of incentives. And whether that's, um, you know, payroll tax rebates or, um, you know, in, in Canada, we have the SHRED program, the the scientific research and, and development. Uh, 
the governments will shop around these boutique tax credits. You see it in the states all the time, especially with the Buy American campaigns. And I'm not I'm not going to comment whether it's uh, it's good or bad. That's more for the, uh, the those learned people in the uh, economics departments at the various uh, universities. I'm just a tax guy. I just follow cash. Um, the point is, with these rebates coming out, yeah, on paper corporation might pay 15% tax, but if they just get a whole bunch of uh, comp rebates, it effectively lowers their actual tax rate. And we're back in the, in the mess we, uh, we already are in at present. So uh, Jack goes on to discuss a few other things here, but the uh, point here is, you know, it, it makes for great headline. Hey, G7's decided on a, on a tax rate that everybody's going to pay worldwide. It, it looks good in terms of headlines, sells papers. In reality, it's going to be very difficult to, uh, to implement this. So I just, the usual uh, advice to clients, just watch, wait and see, see if they can pull it off. Uh, this type of tax reform takes uh, years. And we're talking years and years, not just, you know, a year or two. So to, I mean, we, it's hard enough to get anybody to agree on, uh, on a, um, a multinational COVID, our approach to COVID, to get people to, or to get these countries to agree on a multinational approach to taxation. <laughs> you, well, we'll see. We'll see. So uh, moving on, last uh, last item of note here, uh, Bill C-208. Uh, this was out in May, but it's just hit its, uh, its third reading. And uh, this bill in particular was supposed to streamline the sale of a family business to another family member or... Uh, I guess a better way to put it was it was a way to um, efficiently, in terms of taxes, uh, or rather ta tax paid, a uh, way to, to sell the family business to a family member without triggering adverse tax consequences. Uh, the way the, uh, the Tax Act is currently drafted, uh, Section 84.1, uh, if you sell a business to an arm's length person. You have a mom and pop shop and you sell it to some random down the street. Typically your shares uh, will, will qualify for the uh, Qualified Small Business Corporation um, capital gains exemption uh, on, on the sale of your QSBC shares is what's going on there. If you sell it to an arm's length person. If instead you decide to sell the family business to your son or your daughter or your sister or your dad, whatever, uh, the way 84.1 is drafted, you will not qualify for the capital gains exemption. And instead you get hit with what's called a deemed dividend. It's a tax nerd term, but the point is you do not get the benefit of a uh, combination of capital gains and or capital gains exemption on that sale. You get hit with, uh, it's a deemed dividend. So you pay a hundred percent tax. Well, not a hundred percent tax of st you're not taxed at a hundred percent, but the point is a hundred percent of your income is ta is treated as taxable income when you get hit with a deemed dividend. Um, on the other hand, uh, uh, capital gains exempt sale, none of the proceeds that you receive are are um, uh, attract tax. So right now, you uh, the way the Canadian tax legislation is currently set up, you have a huge disincentive to sell to. Uh, to sell your, your business to a family member. Uh, it's going to hit you with a ton of tax. It's not a good way to do things, and people are actively avoiding it. Um, I don't know why, but uh, one of the backbenchers in cabinet there decided that uh, this is crazy. Why why would we want to encourage this? And uh, or, or rather, why 
it's crazy way of doing things. Why is this continuing? So he's proposed a, an amendment, uh, t uh, Bill C-208, and wants to fix this. So I've got to say, this is good legislation. I'm impressed. It's got bipartisan support. And uh, I, I'm more... I mean, yeah, the the system's messed up. We all agree there. I'm just blown away that they've actually addressed it and want to fix it. I maybe I'm just too cynical, but I have no idea why they've uh, why the politicians have decided to do this. But hey, it's uh, it's a good thing. I hope they run with it. I hope they finish it before the uh, the summer recess uh, and it doesn't die in. Uh, I guess before the recess. So. Uh, we'll leave it at that and uh, move on to questions for the week. Uh, first one, TN Visa uh, plus a move plus TFSA account. So uh, individual rights. I will start employment under a TN Visa in mid-June of 2021, but I won't physically relocate to the U.S. until mid-July. Uh, do I need to close the TFSA accounts before I physically relocate, which would be July? Or do I need to close them before the start of my employment date, uh, which is June? Or does this matter at all? Um, yeah, the easy answer is uh, July. You you need to have um, gotten rid of your your TFSA prior to your your actual um, uh, rescindment of residency, if you will, your your actual uh, uh, departure departure date from Canada. Um, for just a refresher here, if you move to the States and you're an American resident and you're being taxed as an American, you do not want to have a TFSA. Uh, number one, you do not get tax deferred status on that. Um, any, any income that you earn in a TFSA, you're going to be taxed in the States on that. There's no reciprocal agreements or anything like that in place, either via the, uh, the IRS directly or via tax treaty. Uh, you hold a TFSA, you're getting taxed on it. Uh, secondly, if you hold a TFSA and you're a uh, U.S. person, U.S. resident, um, that's actually, you're, you're holding a foreign trust. And foreign trusts in the U.S. attract uh, specific disclosures and uh, tax stuff that needs filed, specifically the Form 3520. If you don't file that, it's a big problem. I think that's a $10,000 penalty. So, yeah. Point is, you're moving to the States, get rid of your TFSA as quick as possible. Uh, next question. Uh, contractor, doing work in the U.S. Um, individual rights. I'm an international student uh, located in Canada. I'm accepting an independent contract offered by a U.S. company and will be working remotely as an independent contractor. I don't have a U.S. tax number for W-2, so I'm expecting to receive a 1099 form. I would like to know in this case if I need to pay U.S. tax, and if I do, how do I pay it? So we'll just slow everything down there. You are a Canadian living in Canada, providing services via your you being physically located in Canada. You have zero uh, U.S. tax exposure. There's no U.S. source income. You're not providing services in the States. You won't owe any U.S. tax. However... You want to make sure that you fill out a W-8-B-E-N form or just as an aside or a W-8-B-E-N-E if you're a corporate entity. I can't tell from 
um, the, uh, the question here, which, which is which, but we'll assume you're an individual. I mean, if you're studenting, my guess is you didn't rush off to set up a corporation, but anyway, um, fill out a W8BEN. That is a form that you can read it. It's the IRS has a nice, um, a fun explanation for what it is, but the short answer is it relieves your U S client of having to, uh, withhold tax on, uh, on your, uh, payments made to you. So you fill that out. You have no, uh, us tax exposure at all. Uh, so I, Hey, that will keep it short and sweet. Moving on. Uh, last question. Um, individual rights. Um, was well, pondering said, consider the, uh, the following scenario. There's an operating corp that generates income. Uh, if a shareholder takes money out of that corp as a loan, it's not allowed. It must be repaid within a year, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's your uh, your deemed income rules. Um, back to the question. But now let's add Holdco that owns a building, rents it to Opco, and basically operates at no profit. Shareholder loans a large amount to Opco so that it could buy a building. Opco also lent a bit of money to the Holdco. Now consider that the shareholder, instead of taking money directly from Opco, Opco instead lends the money to the Holdco. Holdco repays some of its loan to shareholder. In this case, the shareholder does not technically get loans from Opco, and instead, uh, Opco loans money to Holdco. Uh, does this sound legit? Sounds like a loophole to me. Um, even though Holdco is repaying its loan, it still owes the same amount just to a different entity. End question. Um, very long... Um, what what you've essentially described there, first off, no, there's no loophole. You've just described inter uh, intercorporate loans, and there's nothing shady about that. It's a it's actually a pretty common uh, thing that you'll find, especially in hold co op co arrangements. Op co uh, for uh, rather to to I'm using a lot of buzzwords here, so just to to explain in uh, in normal people speak and not tax nerd speak. You have a corporation that is operating a business. The business makes a whole bunch of money. Instead of leaving that money in a business bank account at Opco, Opco turns around and loans all of that money to a holding corporation. And the reason that you typically see that is for uh, creditor proofing or, or, or things like that. You don't want a whole pile of money sitting in Opco because, hey, one of your customers slips, um, gets injured, Opco has a whole bunch of assets, and uh, can be sued, or if it's sued, those assets can can be exposed. Now that's the traditional, um, that's the traditional approach you'll you'll see in in uh, CPA textbooks and things like that. Reality is, if customer falls, they sue everybody. Holdco, Opco, the individual, the individual's mother, they sue everyone and just see what sticks at at court. So, uh, but yeah, the textbook. Uh, textbook definition you'll see most of the time is yeah you you have hold co strip out all the uh, assets of opco and uh, anyway so the point is in um, in that type of arrangement it's it's very I mean it's been for as long as I've been practicing and I think even even further back pretty standard to uh, strip the assets out of uh, opco over to to hold co so what the uh, uh, individual described here in his question number one no it's not a loophole number two uh, it's just a standard uh, um, interco lending uh, arrangement. Now, pro tip here, if you're going to do that, especially if it's an interest-free loan, just make sure you paper these things correctly, guys. Um, 
CRA loves to get their hands into things like this. They look at the books and go, oh, you have an intercompany loan. Where's the paperwork on that? Not necessarily because an individual has done anything bad, but they just like to, you know, once once they get their fingers in the, uh, in the cookie jar, they want to look around and see what's going on. Uh, just in case they can find anything to maybe reassess you on. Uh, so I always have my clients uh, paper these things correctly. Um, just always have a paper trail. Show where stuff is coming from. Have it laid out. Uh, it gives you a much stronger filing position. Uh, it also keeps the CRA's time on the clock down. If you have to spend days and days, maybe even weeks, digging up this uh, this paperwork or... Uh, you know, asking your lawyers to chase this down or even make it up after the fact. Um, it, it just, it opens, uh, it opens the door to a can of worms. CRA asks you a question and you can respond within a day with the correct paperwork. It, it cuts down their time on the audit or review uh, immensely and they tend to just leave and look for people that aren't able to produce paperwork so, so uh, efficiently or, or quickly. So um, yeah, getting back to the point, if you have one of these intercompany loans, make sure it's papered correctly and uh, you have those things stored in an in a easily accessible place, whether that's uh, you know, via, via you directly or whether it's at the accountant's or the lawyer's office, make sure you have that, uh, that paperwork. Uh, so I'm looking at my notes here and that looks like it's it for, uh, for this week. So we will wrap things up for today. Like always, if you have any questions, send them to questions at canadiantaxpodcast.ca or find us over on Twitter. This is Canadian Tax Podcast. Thanks for listening. This commentary is for general informational purposes only and deals with complicated and time-sensitive info that may not apply to your situation. Tax rules are always changing and this information may not be current. Tax is complicated. This information is not tax advice. Don't rely on this info to make tax decisions. Hire a professional to help you. For more info, see canadiantaxpodcast.ca slash disclaimer.